Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And, and this, this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. Claire, what would you call Celebrity Memoir Book Club? Aside from <laughs> Celebrity, Celebrity Memoir, Memoir Book, Book Club. Club. I would call it the cool thought hang. Because on the one hand... <laughs> We're all a bunch of thoughts. No. You spell thought. T-H-O-T. Nope. We're a bunch of... We're a bunch of people... That are cool. We're cool people. We're hanging out. We're chatting How like friends. How would you spell cool? One, two, three. K-E-W-L. <laughs> yeah, we're K-E-W-L cool. We're hanging out. We're best friends. We're comedians. And then we're also giving our thoughts on these Celebrity One More books. And if you want that, I'm so excited. We want you. We want you. We need you. We love you. And if you like us, please leave us a five-star review on Apple's and Ashley... We'll read those at the end of every episode. What if instead of on Apple Podcasts, someone like wrote on an apple and threw it through <laughs> your window? I would like that. And if you don't like us, please keep it to yourself. Leave us alone. In the words of Haley Bieber, <laughs> leave, leave me, me alone. alone. <laughs> oh, my God. And you guys, the housekeeping, I'll just do those. It'll be in 30 seconds or less. One, if you want to see our moment house breakdown of the Lily Collins's essays, check it out. You have until tomorrow. Tomorrow. So seven day replay and then it goes away forever and we are never doing a Lily Collins essay again. So this is like your one chance to get to know her. Two, we are still coming to LA May 10th, Tuesday at the Virgil. Uh, doors at seven, show at 8 p.m. We're so excited. Tickets will be in the show notes, in our Instagram bio, in our TikTok bio and on the Virgil.com. Yes, and we are going to be bringing some of our summer merch that will not be on site until later in the month. Yes, so we can't wait to see you. We love you. Cool. And please join me in thanking Credit Karma for supporting this podcast. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Ready to apply? Head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. And Claire. Yes. May I offer you this opportunity to tell me how would you describe last week in the title of a memoir chapter? I feel like changes in me. Okay. I am trying to change myself. Like a butterfly? <laughs> yeah, like a butterfly, but like post cocoon. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like first you were a caterpillar, then you were a butterfly, and then you're going to be a moth. I am working on myself internally. I feel like something I have realized about myself recently is actually advice from our memoirists I feel like the advice where it's like you have to take people as they are sure. I struggle with and not in like a malicious way it's not like I'm going up to somebody and being like oh, I wish you made more money and so I'm working on reassessing and just like letting go lovely and it's you have to it's funny I feel like what I get mad at girls for doing in romantic relationships, I do in literally every other relationship in my life. That is true. You're like, you can't force someone to be there for you who's not there for you. You can't force this idealistic yeah. relationship to exist if it doesn't exist. But you do do that sometimes. I'm like, I know we fight every day, but underneath it, we really love each other. And we're just one more fight away from figuring this thing out. <laughs> and Ashley. Yeah. If you were to write a memoir, what would last week's chapter be called? Okay, I would call my week throw on a sash because I have got a summer full of weddings and wedding showers and bachelorette parties. And I feel like the common thread in not just my life, like I feel like I've been kind of a bitch about stuff, just being like, all right, got to buckle down for all this travel. And I think that like culturally we're all like, oh my God, how many weddings do you have coming up? That's going to be difficult. And I've decided to be like, no, who loves partying more than me? Nobody. Nobody. I get to go to all these parties this summer. That's Hell fucking yeah. fun. And I'm excited. And I'm going to be the most bachelorettiest party bachelorette party goer there is. And I've been on Amazon finding fun trinkets and things to bring. And I'm just like, you know what? We're going to make this 
the summer of our lives. And now, should we get into this week's memoirist? Boy, shall we. I am excited for this one. Claire, do you want to give us a jumping off point? Sure. So I will say this week we are doing Viola Davis, Finding Me. It came out last Tuesday, April 26th. So it is fresh off the press. I do want to make this preface. On Celebrity Memoir Book Club, we read the books so that you don't have to. We take that to mean like the books that nobody should ever buy in their lives. Like I do not want you to spend a dollar on Chriselle. I do not want you to spend a dollar on Tommy Lee. I really do feel like we take our jobs to be like, listen, if there's anything that might late night in an Amazon cart get you, we want to get you first. If you're ever like, who is this person and what could they possibly have to say? We want to dive in there, get in front of it and let you know. Nothing. Not a lot. <laughs> Viola Davis is one of the authors that we are like, she is telling her story better than we are. Her, I would say Molly Shannon had an incredible one. I mean, anytime we're really in awe of a book, we highly recommend you pick yes, this up. I mean, yeah. if you get anything from this podcast and are at all inspired by like what we are telling you about this book, if you guys at all come away from this podcast being like, well, I want to read that myself, we recommend you do because we would I, love it if you do. I mean, these are stories that are like best told in their own voices. I will trigger Warren this book. I mean, she experiences like a lot, a lot of hardship in her childhood growing up. If you are about to go into like a work meeting with your boss and can't be crying, I recommend waiting for later for this episode. She really tells these stories in a very honest and beautiful way. So let's dive in. Viola Davis was born on August 11th, 1965 in St. Matthews, South Carolina. She was the fifth of six children. So she opens this book with a chapter called Running, where she gives us her defining story, the story that she feels defines her childhood and what she has been attempting to run from since then. And it's inspired by a conversation with our good pal, Will Smith. Yeah, he says, Viola, who are you? What does that mean? I don't know who I am. I replied with indignant confidence. He asked again, no, but who are you? What does that mean? I asked. Look, I'm always going to be the 15-year-old boy whose girlfriend broke up with him. That's always going to be me. So who are you? So then she tells the story, who am I? I was quiet. And once again, that an indestructible memory hit me. Then I blurted it out. I'm the little girl who would run after school every day in third grade because these boys hated me because I was not pretty because I was black. And she explains this story in a lot more detail that every day after school, she would rush to get to the front of the line to get out of class because she knew that there was this group of boys that were going to try and chase her down and beat her up. And so she would just run her heart out and shoes that had holes in them. Finally, one day her mom gave her a crochet needle and was like, don't run from them, face them and also tell them you'll stab them. And it works. So in the beginning, she says, I'm not just a little girl that was running. I'm the little girl that survived. Yes. And she's talking to a therapist. She explains this conversation with a therapist. She's like, you shouldn't be running from that girl. You should hug that girl because that girl is you. And she did survive. And then you see her throughout this book struggling and eventually coming to terms with the acceptance of her childhood. This book, Finding Me, is about like coming to terms with the parts of herself that are the little girl and who she has become and how she got herself to where she is. And really like learning to give herself credit. Okay, so then we jump back into my world. And this is where she's giving us an overview of who she is, who her family is, where her mom came from. She loves her mom so much. Mm -hmm. She has a lot of compassion in this book. And I feel like this book is a good example of why it helps to be older when you write a book. Because she really does look back at everybody in her life and people she has every right to be so angry at. 
with nothing but like forgiveness and grace. She also talks about the way her mind changed as she learned more and more about the people in her life. So she says learning about her mom's education and how her mom was punished at school for being dark skinned coming from the country. She says her mom's family didn't have toilet showers or bathrooms that mixed with the sheer number of kids and the desperate poverty meant often she smelled like piss. Another shame that justified the teacher's fear and anger towards darker skinned my mama. Once again, an association of everything that is wrong and negative with skin shade. All I know is I felt a different level of being heartbroken for my mom when I learned the real driving force behind her decision to not return to school. She also got pregnant at 15 and married Viola's dad. They stayed together until the end of his life. Mm -hmm. But she says, as much as I try to chisel into my mama to get to the core of who she is, I never can. There are decades of suppressed secrets, trauma, lost dreams and hopes. It was easier to live under the veil and put on a mask rather than to slay them. She talks about her mom's scars, emotional and physical. She says, I think about the complexity of her childlike heart compared to the ferocious maternal warrior who would angrily snatch her wig off to kick anybody's ass who even thought about harming her babies. And she really digs deep into the fact that her mom had so much love and fight for her children, but then never was able to apply that to herself. So when she was in difficult situations, she never had that same fight for herself that she would for the people she loved. Unlike my mother, my father was a simpler man. Dan Davis was born 1936 in St. Matthews, South Carolina. She talks about her father lovingly. She goes, my father, whom we called my daddy, was more than his work. He was a great storyteller. Dad was also a pretty good guitar and harmonica player. He absolutely loved soul, jazz, and the blues. Because my daddy is gone now, I will never know what demons caused him to run away from his home at 15. As much as I love my father, I know those demons haunted him his entire life. They embedded themselves deep within him and boiled into rage and alcoholism. That rage was usually released on payday. So her parents obviously met very young. They had they had those first five children. Her little sister wasn't born until she was 11. But when Viola was about four or five years old, they moved from South Carolina up to Rhode Island because her father was a horse groomer. And there's a lot of racetracks in Rhode Island. They moved up to this town, Central Falls, where he could work. And they brought the three younger children. And the two older ones stayed back with the grandparents. And there she talks about their relationship. And it was bad yeah so I also want to clarify that Viola was the youngest child for most of her childhood so she has a real like baby of the family energy in the way she tells a lot of stories and then when she was 11 years old her youngest sister Danielle came into the picture so they moved up to Rhode Island where I don't know if they were the only black family in Central Falls but it was a predominantly white town so the racism she experienced was like horrible and she had no other black kids that she could play with Well, there was one other black kid who refused to acknowledge that he was black. And it was like a secret that no one said Viola was the black kid in her class. And this other kid was one of the bullies that hunted her down for being black. She also talks about this other story I want to call out of her childhood. She had gotten sick when she was younger and her mom took her to the hospital and a doctor said that she would never develop normally, that she would have like a big belly and bow legs And there was something wrong with her and he wanted to experiment on her. And the mom was just like, absolutely the fuck not. He wanted to experiment on you. He said he was going to break your legs to see if they grew straight. But I saw how he was looking at me. I ain't dumb. He saw that I was poor and black. I took you from that hospital. That doctor kept saying, Mrs. Davis, you're making a big mistake. But I told him he wasn't going to experiment on my baby. I took you to Miss Cora's house and she made you some lima bean soup. And you ate the whole bowl and drank a big glass of cold water. And that was it. And then her mom says, you ain't got no bow legs or big stomach. Your head is big, but that's what makes you a good actor. (laughs) That's true. Actors have big ass heads. (laughs) Actors do have big heads because I feel like you need to be able to see it. But yeah, I also really recommend reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Locks, which is 
a nonfiction book about the way black people are treated in medicine, which is really bad. So growing up, they had like a really chaotic and violent home. Their father was, I mean, like abusive almost doesn't cover it. The way she speaks about it is like horrified and matter of factly, but it's almost so horrible that you like can't believe it. You know what I mean? She talks about waking up in the middle of the night to hearing her mom get beaten up with a two by four. One time he came after her with a bat to try to break her legs. Yeah. The amount of times they ran out of the house screaming, he's going to kill me. The mom would hide in a store or somewhere down the street. Mm -hmm. They would hide from him until his rage just wore off the next day. He also cheated openly and often. She says when she asked her mom years later when they were both adults, if her mom had ever had an affair, she said no. And, and Viola's like, I wish she had. Like, I wish she had had some piece of happiness during those years. Like I said, May Alice, her mom, has a heart that simply is loyal. It attaches and asks for nothing in exchange. Yeah, she shows her claws only when those she loves needs protection or to protect who she feels belong to her. She never raises her fist for her. There's a very flimsy barrier between the asshole predators, abusers, and my mom. She is a self-sacrificer at the expense of her own joy. So then there's this one night where the fight was particularly bad. Danielle was a baby and... And Viola was trying to break up the fight between her parents and her dad picked up a glass bottle and just hit her mom in the head with it and cut her open. And at that point, she stood up to her dad, which is something she had never done before. And she kept screaming at him until he handed over the glass bottle and like left the house. And she says, the fight marked the beginning of my shift. Looking back on that night when I stood up to my dad and wiped up my mom's blood, I knew my life would be a fight. And I realized this. I had it in me. So then she gets into her childhood and her life comes into focus, really, when her two oldest siblings move in with them, Diane and John. Diane was not like a role model, but like someone who just swept in and like showed her that there was a next thing. She was like the ultimate oldest daughter. She was deeply driven, ambitious, and had decided from a very young age with a confidence and a tenacity. I can't believe anybody that age would have, but she was like, we are going to get out of this, and this is the way. And she felt very confident in saying... If you excel at everything, you can have a different life. Yeah, she had received a really terrible education in the South when she had been being raised by the grandparents. So then when she came up to Rhode Island, they took her from the sixth grade down to the fourth grade. And then we're going to push her back to the third grade. And she was like, no, sit with me every day after school. Teach me what I need to know to catch me up. I will be in the fourth grade. And then she would teach the youngest siblings everything she had learned at tutoring because she was like, now you'll be ahead. And then Viola would get bored in class because she knew everything. And she like really wanted to take everything that had been thrown at her and like try to make things better for her siblings. So when Diane came home, she looked around at the disheveled apartment. Viola, you don't want to live like this when you get older, do you? She asked in a whisper. She didn't want my mom to hear. No, Diane. You need to have a really clear idea of how you're going to make it if you don't want to be poor for the rest of your life. You have to decide what you want to be. Then you have to work really hard. I remember thinking, I just want candy. I couldn't understand the abstract. I was too young. But something I didn't have the words for yet could feel shifted inside of me. What do I want to be? The first seed had been planted. Was there a way out? Achieving becoming somebody became my idea of being alive. I felt that achievement could detox the bad shit. It would detox the poverty. It would detox the fact that I felt less than being the only black family in Central Falls. I could be reborn a successful person. I wanted to achieve more than what my mother had. From age five, because of Diane, recreation and reinvention and redefinition became my mission. Although I could not have articulated it, she simply was my supernatural ally. So then she's talking about growing up in Rhode Island. They as a family, all the kids loved school because it was just sort of a reprieve to get out of the house. They lived right next door to the big school in a building at 128 Washington, which they call 128 throughout the book. And it was 
terrible. The mayor brought them there and was like, here, you can have this apartment. You don't have to pay rent. And I think it's supposed to be this like kind act. No, no, no. It was a condemned building. Yeah. So they're like, you can live here until we tear it down. Right. But like no one can live there. It was unlivable conditions. I guess the mayor wasn't actively evicting them from the condemned building. Yeah. I guess I thought that was charity to be like live in this absolutely unlivable place. The mayor like kicked down a wall and was like, you can have that one next door too. They were like, we'll legally let you squat here. So they lived in this building. They had two apartments in it with the wall cut down between one of the apartments did not have heat or electricity and the main apartment sometimes had heat and electricity. It was too small for that many people. They rarely had running water, hot water, heat. I mean, she just writes these horrific descriptions of all of the rats that she couldn't even go into the kitchen because the rats had completely taken over. There was terrible electrical fires all the time. She said they just like regularly had fires in the apartment. And then, of course, after the fire, the fire department would come and everything would become super soaking wet because they would hose it all down and that would ruin everything. It's constant physical terror. The amount of things that didn't even need to happen. She just tells these stories like once they had lit a firecracker and she just got too scared to throw it and it exploded in her hand. Mm-hmm. They would make candy on the stove and the oil would get on their skin and burn them. They were just children who were never being watched. They were in constant danger. In terms of the house, she says, no one cares about the conditions in which the unwanted live. You're invisible, a blame factor that allows the more advantaged to be let off the hook from your misery. The fires got more frequent. The neighbors were also dangerous. The neighbors were a family of eight kidnapped children and two female guardians who they later found out were doing welfare fraud and had literally kidnapped these children to get more money. And the children, of course, were so angry and they would just beat up Viola and her siblings every day. That story comes out later when she says she meets one of those girls. And the girl was like, I was just so angry because I miss my mom. They had kidnapped us and they were sexually abusing us and moving us around and starving and beating us. Like It was just this hell trap of just so many hurt, angry kids that are just like wailing on each other yeah there was a day that they didn't go to school because it was a freezing cold day the pipes had frozen so they had no running water in the house and they just didn't have the ability to wash up and get to school it was freezing in their apartment the principal ran out and was like well let me know if there's anything I can do because the principal saw them not at school and it's like I don't know I think there is something that can be done (laughs) and she writes there's an emotional abandonment that comes with poverty and being black The weight of generational trauma and having to fight for your basic needs doesn't leave room for anything else. You just believe that you're the leftovers. So Viola talks about how they did have a TV in their house. One was broken, but on top of that was one that did work if you used aluminum foil wrapped antenna. So they were watching the TV one night and suddenly I saw her. I saw her. It was Miss Cicely Tyson in the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. She had long neck and was beautiful, dark skin, glistening with sweat, high cheekbones, thick, full lips, and a clean short afro. My heart stopped beating. The shame, pain, fear, confusion, all these negative feelings I had about my life and my situation were blasted through a brand new doorway. It was like a hand reached out for mine and I finally saw my way out. The beauty of that moment was my sister saw an exit too. So she falls in love with Miss Tyson and the idea of acting and they all rally together. And then she tells this incredible story about how there was a contest at Jenks Park sponsored by Central Falls Parks and Recreation Department. It was a big deal. The whole city was buzzing. All the white kids who went to Teresa Laundrie's School of of Dance for tap dance acrobatic lessons, so forth, some of whom freely called us the N-word all the time, were favored to win. But anybody in Central Falls could create a skit and whoever won got a profile in the paper and a prize. So they decided to like write a whole sketch. It sounds really funny. The premise of it is the Lifesaver show where people come out and talk about how they saved somebody's life. And it has a perfectly set three-part 
callback joke and they act it out and they scavenge their parents closets for costumes and stuff and they work her sister Diane is so funny she's just so like poised for a little girl when Viola says she wanted to enter Diane said I studied this we need a producer we need a director we need a writer we need actors and we need a wardrobe budget I just feel like to need a producer for a sketch for the park is so funny but and to be like kids yeah. to be kids who are like who's gonna produce this we didn't even think of that to this day we do not have a producer so then it turns out Viola has horrible stage fright and she is about to freeze up Diane looked at me and saw my fear we're not freezing today Viola right I nodded reluctantly the butterflies in my stomach were overwhelming but so was the desire to not destroy what we created so they went up there and friggin crushed it we won we got first place and I'll never forget the faces of those chosen girls from Teresa Landry school of dance when they watched us do our happy dance too we won we won we weren't interested in the softball set we just wanted to win we wanted to be somebody we wanted to be somebody and so then she talks about her sisters so before Danielle, the baby was born, it was just the five of them, their older brother, John. And then it was Diane, the oldest sister, Anita, Dolores, and then Viola. Yes. My sisters became my platoon. We were all in a war fighting for significance. Each of us was a soldier fighting for our value, our worth. And I think her sisters are kind of what saved her. I think the fact that they had each other and they were looking out for each other. And the fact that she had such a strong sister in Diane and like all of her sisters were just these incredibly smart, capable overachievers. Just being in it together, I think having someone to hold Mm -hmm. at night, they would all sleep together and hold each other. Even now, me and Dolores have dreams about 128. It created the backdrop for bonds of sisterhood. 128 was a womb of sisterhood. At night, the sisters would huddle on a top bunk for warmth, horrified at the sounds of the rodents eating pigeons on the roof, eating our toys, squealing when we felt the weight of their bodies as they jumped on our beds searching for something to eat. We would wrap bed sheets around our necks to protect ourselves from bites. Going to the bathroom at night in the midst of this was not an option. Cutting on the lights and watching them scurry was not an option because there were no lights in the part of the apartment where we slept. The bathroom was a faraway place on the other side of the apartment, but it may as well have been the other side of the world. If you didn't go before bed, you could forget making the journey at night. So we just peed. She also talks about sexual abuse. She says sexual abuse back in the day didn't have a name. The abusers were called dirty old men and the abused were called faster heifers. It was shrouded in silence and invisible trauma and shame. It is hard to process how pervasive it was. What made us sitting ducks was our lack of supervision and our lack of knowledge. It was a different time. It was constant. It really is like everywhere from in the house, from out of the house. She talks about how recently as an adult woman, she told her mom that their own brother would sometimes abuse them and chase them around when the parents weren't home. And she says, once again, more secrets, layers upon layers of deep, dark ones, trauma, shit, piss, and mortar mixed with the memories that have been filtered, edited for survival, and entangled with generational secrets. Somewhere buried underneath all that waste lives me, the me fighting to breathe, the me wanting so badly to feel alive. But this is the journey. The only weapon I have to blast through it all is forgiveness. It's giving up all hope of a different past. So she talks about telling her mom and her mom just sitting there silent. And she says, here I am in this gorgeous, giant, expensive kitchen talking to my mom about kind of like the truths I can't escape and she says success pales in comparison to healing not just the truth of the abuse but the decision to love to forgive what I knew the reaction would be which was silence and so then she like tells another story I think just to give an example of what freakish horrors they were constantly encountering and and it really is because they were poor it wasn't just oh we were hungry and like they were hungry a lot it was the fact that they were always like targets for just these incredibly scary events and so she tells the story about one time they're outside and they see this man who looks like a monster and they all kind of start teasing him and being like ah there's a monster and she's like he's standing there he's looking through us there's something off and we can't tell what's going on and then a cat that they all loved 
a neighborhood cat that they had kind of informally adopted walks by this man and they're all like cat get away from him cat get away from him and the man picks up the cat rings its neck breaks its neck kills the cat and then just starts chasing the kids and all the kids get home and they turn around and Anita was missing and they tell their parents and the parents call the police and they go on this like town-wide search for Anita and finally they find her hours later and she had spent the entire day running and hiding and being chased by this man and they describe this as one of the big traumas she says like so much of this was little trauma but this was a big trauma we watched the cops put a straight jacket on him and put him on a gurney and into a padded wagon we later found out that he had just come back from vietnam where he had spent months in the woods eating all kinds of rodents and cats his ptsd was so bad that his wife had thrown him out of the house that day anita was always the brawn of the family the survivor the fighter but even some of the mightiest of warriors have wounds that leave them debilitated the incident threatened to leave anita depleted the blood on the floor that belonged to my mom or blood on the streets from the damaged souls that we encountered needed mounds of solve and we didn't have the knowledge or tools to grasp that we just didn't but i feel like this story is such an example of how much compassion Viola has for people because even to add he was somebody who was suffering too from something horrible that had happened to him it's very generous of her yeah she doesn't say he was an evil man she says he was a traumatized man so then she talks about school she says school was our salvation we coped by being excellent academically we loved learning we didn't want to end up in the same situation as our parents worrying where the next meal was coming from and they were incredible Dolores and Diane made the Rhode Island a national honor society they blazed a path for me but at school, I was always so sleepy, hungry, and ashamed. I would arrive at 8 a.m., and by 8.30, I was falling asleep. So then one day, they're in a circle to read, and she sits next to the teacher, and the teacher leaned back with a distressed look on her face. She then gestured for me and whispered in my ear, you need to tell your mother to get some soap and water and wash you. The odor is horrible. Then she shooed me away as if I had vomited on her. I was numb. A few minutes later, I was called into the nurse's office. When I walked in, I saw Dolores. Dolores was an incredible student and that day she had gotten a test back that she'd been so excited about all week and she's like Dolores if she found out that there was a test coming she was like excited and that day she had gotten an A. She was beyond excited and took the paper back to her desk. She was being incessantly bullied by a girl named Maxine. Maxine looked at my sister's test and went up to the teacher and said Miss Dolores cheated and without missing a beat the teacher called the Dolores up to her desk took her test from her and put a big red F on it. She was devastated but she said that this was a teacher who simply never liked her because she always got straight A's. She was the same teacher who told me in second grade that black people could not read or write at all when they were slaves. I told Dolores that I was sorry that that happened and we didn't help her. She said, that's okay, Viola. That was the day I decided to be a teacher. It devastated me so much that I didn't want another kid to go through what I'd gone through. And then she says Dolores has been a brilliant teacher for the past 35 years. This day is the same day that Viola had been sent to the nurse for hygiene and Dolores was sent to the nurse too. It says, it's funny that with the complaints about hygiene, no one ever asked us about our home environment. No one asked us if we were okay or if anything was wrong. No one talked to us. The nurse just sat them down and explained to them that they needed to wash their clothes. Not that they didn't have options. Yeah, that they didn't have water. They didn't have soap. And after this conversation, they started washing their clothes every night before bed in the sink and then they would hang them to dry and the clothes would not be dry by morning and they would put on wet clothes and go to school even in the dead of winter which I don't know I think if you're a fucking nurse you should know I mean Viola really talks about how everybody had these platitudes like be great do good work hard but meanwhile she's like if I got two full hours of sleep I was lucky we'd be awakened by a scream a screech the only hope the only blessing was that the fight didn't last long but sometimes their conflicts would last all night or night after night for days if it lasted all night, we did not sleep. Imagine your father beating your mom with a two by four piece of wood, slamming it on her back, the screams for help, the screams of rage and anger. She talks about like how hard it is to focus when you're just hungry all the time, that she had no food. And then of course, they were constantly being bullied for being black. 
And it just seems like everyone was like, well, we want you to succeed, but nobody would help them. No one would help them. I mean, if you looked at them, you could see that they needed help. Even the principal, the day that she ran out and saw them. And then, well, she says the principal actually would regularly give her her daughter's old hand me downs. Yeah. And stuff. So like the, she does call out the principal as like one person who did try to help. And there are actually about to come up. There are a handful of people who go out of their way to really help her. And she points to that as like the lily pads that allowed her to get to where she was. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, there's not a lot of people saying, why is this girl falling asleep constantly? Why is this girl unable to focus? So then when she's 11 years old, Danielle is born and the whole family rallied to protect Danielle at all costs. All the sisters, they really took it as their responsibility to help protect Danielle. After being the youngest for so long, Danielle's birth gave me a sense of responsibility. It was as if Flojo passed me the baton when I hadn't been practicing. I now had the last leg of the race to run, the clock ticking, on a journey where every other runner has 0% body fat and mine is at 40%. My shoes are untied. I can't see because I've got dry eye, but I still have to run my leg of the race. My practice runs was being a primary schooler who was sent home soaked with piss. Piss soaked. I must now run holding my baby sister. I do think what she's saying here is for so long being the baby, at least she only ever had to worry about herself. But now there's this added thing of not only are you in a situation that you can't really help, but now you're in it with all of the guilt and burden of trying to save someone else. Mm -hmm. So then we get to one of her first real helpers. So the summer after freshman year of high school, she goes to Upward Bound, which is for six weeks in the summer, I would live on a college campus and take classes. Usually there was 48 students from various communities in Rhode Island and from many different backgrounds. So it was a federally funded program that was meant to help first generation college students transition to college. And here she is met with a lot of, she goes, I loved Upward Bound. It gave me a jolt of perspective and grace about my family situation. Someone who spent four years living in a jungle or watching a parent get their head blown off by militia made my problem seem small. I know they weren't, but it introduced me to the painful truth that everyone is going through something. I think, well, because of in her school situation where it seemed like they were the only ones having a hard time, I think to see that they weren't the only ones was comforting. Mm -hmm. So she joins Upward Bound. She takes acting class there. And Ron Stetson was her acting coach. And he was someone who really believed in her. He had so much faith in her. And this was the first place where she went and had an acting class. And she saw that you can use your life experience as power. She said, I became an actor because it's a healing wellspring. And she said it was her and all these kids who were like the children of refugees and refugees themselves. And they were all in there just like sharing their darkest trauma. I mean, it's what we always say about all actors is you're like, oh God, it sounds fucked up in there. But (laughs) people are on the stage, like pouring their hearts out. And I think it just felt so good to be able to share herself because so much of Viola's upbringing was keeping it a secret, was like bearing all of this in silence. He also... Just gives her a lot of inspiration and he tells her that she's beautiful, which to her opened up another space in the world where I could actually be anyone or anything I wanted to be. I could define my world in this space and piggyback to my world stronger. Drama provided an escape. The emotional release acting aloud gave me a great joy. And then also, I mean, and and we'll see this. She is like so naturally talented that she gets so much acclaim from early on. Mm -hmm. She says, when I was acting, I felt everything. Every last receptor in my body was alive, 100% alive. So in high school, she becomes what she calls uber-focused. At this point, I was trying to leave the last vestiges of my bad behavior behind and was uber-focused on achieving as much as I could. And so she is, I think, doing really well in school at this point. But still, she's like, she's someone who chats. A chatty gal. Can't can't relate. (laughs) Her science teacher kicks her out of class because she won't stop, like, cutting up. And then a few years later, he came into one of my classes and said, Viola, I have something for you. What is it? 
He said, I went to the dentist appointment today. And as I was waiting in the room, I see this pamphlet. It was a pamphlet for the arts recognition and talent search, a national competition in Miami, Florida in five disciplines, drama, visual arts, dance, music, and writing. And he wants her to enter in the drama department. And she, she sees it and she's like, well, of course not. And she's like, I can't do it. So then she meets up with this guy, Jeff Kenyon, who was a counselor from Upward Bound. And she tells him about it. And he's like, well, you're going to do it. And she's like, I can't. And he's like, well, why not? And she lists all the reason why not. And it's like, I don't have money for the application. He's like, I'll get you the money. It was like $15. And he's like, I'll get you $15. And she's like, I don't have a VHS tape. And I had to send it in on a VHS tape. And he was like, I have a VHS tape. And then she's like, well, I don't know where I'd film it. And he's like, well, on the Rhode Island campus, they have a news program and you can film it there. And so then he's like, now that all of your excuses are gone, what are you going to do? And she's like, I guess I'll submit. And so she submits and she works really hard on it. She does these two monologues and she's just proud of herself for even trying. She says 30,000 kids apply and only like 80 get selected. And she is one of the 80. And then she says she goes and it's like, I mean, she is just so talented. I did great with my monologues. Afterwards, it seemed that everyone wanted to know me. Everyone loves a winner. So she was named a promising young artist. There was like a a word for her at City Hall when she got home. It was a big deal. Yeah. And she says, eventually, I received a full ride scholarship with the preparatory enrollment program, PEP, as we called it, with the sister program of Upward Bound. So she goes to Rhode Island College, where she lives in an all girl dorm. And she decides she's not going to pursue acting because she says there's no way to make money in it. She says, once I arrived, I unpacked, settled in, and proceeded to fall into a deep, deep depression. Probably the deepest depression I've ever experienced. It was a depression about trading in my dream. I also wonder, so she says this because she decided not to pursue acting. But I also do feel like when you've been running and fighting so long, and then you're finally in a place where you can kind of let down your guard, it like all rushes in. Yeah, you, I mean, she's living in a dorm. She has a bed. She has heat. She has a bathroom. She has a food program from Monday through Friday. So like for the first time, she does have a bit of security Mm -hmm. and the entire time she's there she's getting phone calls from her mom Anita who has a daughter Brianna and then her little sister Danielle they're constantly showing up the school and being like we have to stay here we can't be home it's not safe for us and she's like I can't have visitors nobody's allowed to stay over and she keeps turning them away and she's like I didn't know what to do I couldn't help them and I think that that stress of being asked to support them when she herself had like just gotten to safety Mm -hmm. was part of it She says, my best intentions did not match my resources. Meanwhile, she says, my older sister, Diane, experienced every accolade imaginable during her journey. National Honor Society, Rhode Island Honor Society, All-State Basketball. In addition, she was a great actress and singer. She could do it all. Successful black women almost normalize overachieving. That was definitely Diane. And she says, I felt if I did not go to college, if I did not get a degree, if I was not excellent, then my parents' reality would become my own. There was no gray area. Either you achieved or failed. She also talks about feeling very lost here because it was a predominantly white school, like 99% white. And she says she didn't feel like she fit in with the white kids. And then the few black kids didn't think she was black enough because she hadn't grown up in like a black community. She had grown up in a white community where all she had were her siblings. Mm -hmm. And she talks about that a couple of times, not really having a lot of understanding about black history because it was not taught at all. There were a couple things that her teachers would tell her about slavery that were just like a very fucked up grazing of the topic. Like, oh yeah, slaves couldn't read. And then she decides to change her major and pursue acting. She says, you know what? I'm just going to do it. That was when much of the depression fell away. The cure was courage. The courage to dare risking failure. I decided I was going to be a theater major and I was going to be an actor. This entire time, though, so she so she starts pursuing acting and it makes her so happy. But she's also working like three full time jobs or three part time jobs that take up so much time. She has to take the bus there. She is spending just like so many more hours than everybody else just to survive and to have money for food on the weekends. 
She says a lot of college for me was great laughter and connection with sweet mates and other friendships I began to make mixed with isolation and fucking pain. I still felt like I had to hide my deepest truths to fit in. Every once in a while, I sat with the other black students in our area in our cafeteria, but most of the time I sat with my tribe, my sweet mates and myself. She has a lot of pretty good criticism about theater programs throughout this book and it does start with college she says the one woman show was my senior thesis project and the purpose was to show that I had range that I could transform just like my white counterparts at the time I felt it was a show that was a true coming out event but in hindsight the objective was fucked up how do you create a show to prove you're worthy and then she talks a little bit about college theater programs and getting into main stage plays and how hard it is for someone who's working and also trying to survive while being in school. The kids who don't have privilege, who don't have to work after school, have so much more time to dedicate to being stagehands or do these other projects. It's a lot like what Molly Shannon experienced in just if you have to work, you don't get the opportunities that the other kids get in extracurriculars at school that like should be part of the theater program. Yeah, she's like, how could you possibly study acting and theater and then graduate having never been in a play? The fact that that couldn't be a part of the curriculum is crazy. Yeah. She says, there's a bartering desperation attached to that. Let me prove to you that I have talent instead of just being. Forget about the dark-skinned girl who just walked into the audition room. Let me use my training and technique to make you forget that I'm black. The extent of that obstacle is way more burdensome than the obstacles placed in front of my white counterparts. White students just had to show up and be good. There was no transforming to make you believe that this Rhode Islander could actually be Russian in a play by a Russian playwright. They simply had to be, well, white. This obstacle would be the 400-pound gorilla that would constantly inhabit the various rooms I entered throughout my life. So then she graduates and gets a summer grant to study at the Circle in the Square Theater in New York. She works at a factory leading up to it to be able to afford it to supplement a grant that she got from the Rhode Island State Council. And there she studies with some really great acting teachers. It was a really major moment in her acting awakening to have this experience. And they, at the end of the program, asked her to stay. After the six weeks program, they asked one student to join the theater and they asked me. I declined saying Circle in the Square is a great training program, but I want a program where I can get a job afterwards. She needed to start making some money so that she could up her credit score. And if you're looking to do the same, let me introduce you to Credit Karma. If you're paying down old credit card debt, a personal loan could be just what you need. Paying off big expenses like car repairs, unexpected medical bills, high interest credit card debt is going to just keep piling up, but a personal loan might have a much lower interest point and Credit Karma is going to help you find the best personal loan for you. Credit Karma uses your credit data to find loan offers that are personalized to you so that you can have a better idea of exactly what you'll be approved for and you can apply with confidence. Comparing loan offers on Credit Karma is completely free. It won't affect your credit score and could be a really great way to save money. Credit Karma is the place to apply with more confidence to day. If you're ready to apply, head to creditkarma.com slash loan offers to see personalized offers. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers to find the loan for you. That's creditkarma.com slash loan offers. She really feels like she needs to go to one of the top master's programs after college in order to be guaranteed a job. She feels like she has this step-by-step program in her mind that like you go to undergrad, you go to the one of the big master's programs, you get an agent from the graduation showcase they get you jobs quickly. And that's like how she sees it playing out. So she takes a gap year after her summer at Circle in the Square, and then she's going to go apply to these master's programs. So for the year after Circle in the Square, she is doing plays. There's some prestigious plays in 
Rhode Island and she gets cast in one of them. She's like a working actress at this point. She's getting paid to be in plays. She still has a day job, but some of her income is coming from this play. And in this play, she meets David, who she calls her seven year boyfriend. David was older and blacker than black. He had immersed himself in black history and black consciousness and black literature. It all made me feel so grown. And so she ends up dating him for seven years and she is obsessed with him. But she says, I was with a man who never loved me. My objective the entire seven years was earning his love. I would initially pray, convincing myself that this would be the day he'd profess that he couldn't live without me. This would be the day he just looked at me and tell me I'm beautiful. I practically gave him VIP access to relationships with other women. I felt lucky to have him. That's how damaged I was. He never remembered my birthday, my favorite foods, Christmas, Valentine's. I was into the outward marks of achievement rather than the inner sense of home with a man, a sense of belonging to oneself. She, a couple years in, finds out that he had been cheating on her and her sister Anita was like, I can't believe you didn't know that you guys were long distance. You barely ever saw each other. She kind of has this realization. She says, it was an exchange I wished I had before I started dating. I never knew love had to actually serve the two people involved, establish boundaries and communication. I thought all of that just happened. So she really thought that like being in a relationship was simply deciding to be in a relationship. It didn't have anything to do with like a connection and an agreement between two people to like respect and love each other. She says, as much as I would love to romanticize this part of my life, I can't. I was so unfinished. I asked God for a boyfriend, professional acting status, and the experience of traveling overseas. But I didn't ask for wisdom. I didn't ask for self-love. And it showed. However, during this time, she does go up and audition for Juilliard. And she has one of the craziest auditioning stories I think there probably is. (laughs) So she was doing a play in Rhode Island. So she knows that there are three major acting programs, NYU, Juilliard, and Yale. She can't afford the $25 application fee to all of them. So she just picks Juilliard. Yes. So she's applying to Juilliard. It's her only application. She does not know that the audition process is three days. So you like audition for one group of teachers and then they like kind of pass you on to the next group if you make it through and then you work your way up to the dean. She gets to New York for her audition time slot and tells them that she has 45 minutes because to she audition. has to go back to Rhode Island that same day to do her 730 call time for her play that night. So she has two three minute monologues and she's like, I don't know how long could it take? So she gets her name called. She goes in and she says to them afterwards, I just thought you should know I've got 45 minutes. I'm doing a play in Providence. My half hour call is at 730. It's a four and a half hour train ride. You had to tell me whether I'm in or out. They looked shocked as if I had pimp slapped them, but they said, okay, stand by. So they went and they just got all the other teachers and fast tracked her to a final audition that minute. (laughs) But so she leaves and she's basically like, I knew I was in. And sure enough, she was. And she says, by the time you get the acceptance, you actually get into Juilliard though. The honeymoon and the joy of getting in is long gone and you're just facing hell basically. Yeah. She says, I wish I could have held on to the fact that my audition was badass. So she spends the rest of her months before Juilliard doing the show. It's on the road. She goes out to L.A. She literally is like auditioning up into the minute that Juilliard starts. She flies a red eye to New York City, sees her apartment, which is like notoriously the worst actress apartment in the world. Everyone's like, that was a bad apartment. Drops off her bags and goes straight to her class. She says, I was about to go into the belly of the beast. Juilliard was about to rip my world apart. I would come face to face, not with God, but with me. Someone should have told me, Viola, you don't start your new life like that. Don't squeeze in the start of your new life. So she goes hard on Juilliard. So basically Juilliard, 
Juilliard, as you guys may know, is super intense and super serious and takes itself very seriously. And it's like the king of acting as a craft. So she talks about how like each year it's like different techniques and things they focus on. And she basically says it was arduous listening and watching white guest actors perform, white playwrights coming in to speak, white projects, white characters, a European approach to the work, speech, voice, movement. Everyone was geared towards a molding and shaping into a perfect white actor. The unspoken language was that they set the standard that they're better. I'm a dark skinned black actress with a deep voice. No matter how much I adhere to the training, when I walk out into the world, I will be seen as a dark skinned black woman with a deep voice. Hell, when I got out in the world, I would be called jobs based on me. I had to make peace with that. And I had to admit there's some classical playwrights and contemporary ones that I never wanted to perform anyway. The absolute shameful objective of this training was clear. Make every aspect of your blackness disappear. For all actors, she has this point of like, Juilliard makes a point of being like, whatever you would be typecast as, we're going to make you learn to be the opposite. You need to like somehow become the opposite of what you are. And she's like, but in her case, that meant not being a black woman. And she's like, listen, I'm done trying to get rid of myself. And also, what does this do for me? I'm never going to be called in to play whoever Kirsten Dunst is being called in to play. It does not do me any good to try and spend all this time learning to be someone else. I am myself and I need to like live in that body and and come from that place. Yeah, every year for Martin Luther King Day, the few black students at Juilliard and like very few would do a special MLK celebration performance and they were warned not to do it. They would do jazz, gospel, tap, modern, any ethnic material was on the forbidden list. We called on all of the above when we created the MLK celebration. It was our rebellion. We were told it would ruin our instrument. Well, our soul was our instrument too. And she says very few of the faculty would even come. And she's like, it was some of the best art I've ever seen performed in my life. I mean, imagine the most talented people in the world. Like if they're getting into Juilliard, which is seems like a deeply racist institution. Yeah. They're like these yeah. black students are like the most talented people. <laughs> Their ignorance made us fight harder for ourselves and our crafts. The most talented people performing the material they're the most passionate about. That's I would love to see that. Juilliard forced me to understand the power of my blackness. I spent so much of my childhood defending it, being ridiculed for it. Then in college, proving I was good enough. I had compartmentalized me. At Juilliard, I was mad. Then she gets this opportunity to go on a trip to Africa. The lead up travel and experience in Africa caused a cataclysmic change in my life. It busted a hole in my experience. So she goes and they're watching these women perform their dances and their rituals and enjoy their culture. And I just feel like for her to see so much black joy and so much of like the great art and dancing and music that is the exact opposite of what she's being taught is the height of culture at Juilliard it was so freeing to her and she found so much of herself in watching them perform she says in Africa at age 25 I felt like my life was both starting and ending I was in an in-between time Africa was an elixir Juilliard's academic approach did not connect the work to our lives it missed the true potency of artistry which is that it shifts humanity art has the power to heal the soul she comes back. That's when she has this realization that her relationship with a seven year boyfriend is bad. And I think she comes back and feels so much stronger in herself. I was always on the outside of Juilliard because I wasn't on the inside of me. I was fighting an ideology about what an actor was. And it was all born in the depths of white superiority. The notion of the classics being the basis for everything. Yeah, I wasn't in the land of the classics. In Africa, there's the equivalent of every classical instrument known to man, and it predates any European instrument. There was a technical proficiency attached to drumming, dance, music, and storytelling. Why is it limiting to play black characters, but white actors are versatile playing white characters? Why do I have to be small, willowy, and lighter than a paper bag to be sexual? I'm, I was sold lies for two years, and the worst part is I believed it because I couldn't combat it with anything else. 
She says, I found that there is no creating without using you. For two years, I thought the rule was to erase and negate oneself. That's what I was doing. Lose the voice, speech, walk, face, lose the blackness, lose and bury the very essence of what makes you, you, and create something void of joy, but steeped in technique. But Africa exercised those demons. So the next year, she gets a really good agent at a really good agency. She's really thrilled. She says, it seems like he went and he saw me and my talent. And so most people wait another year for their senior conclusion to get an agent. And she's like, I didn't want a million callbacks. I just wanted one person who believed in me. And so that's what she got. Yes. I was finally two weeks away from graduating from Juilliard. The last two weeks were meant to be the jump off to my new life. After four years of honing my craft, this was it. All the pain, joy, suffering, and triumphs. And suddenly, exactly two weeks before graduation day, I woke up sick. Two weeks before graduation, I woke up sick to my stomach and just knew I got pregnant by my boyfriend of seven years. Ever since I started having sex, which was late in life, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, you can learn about birth control, but how to love, how to be consistent and responsible in control, create boundaries. Hell, even making sure that you had the money to access condoms or birth control pills. The only commitment I had down, I felt, was my career, and that took everything I had. So she goes and gets an abortion, and she tells the story about going and the horrible pain, like the physical pain being in the room with all the other women who have also just had abortions and how hard it was for her. Hell, I remember calling my boyfriend yelling at him, where are you? Why aren't you here? He thought that what I did was wrong and yet there was every probability that he wouldn't be there for me or the baby. So afterwards she says, the big clots of blood were a constant reminder that I had terminated a life and I absolutely without question knew it was a life which I had traded for my own life. Try dealing with the weight of that shit. (laughs) What have I learned from all of it? There's absolutely no way whatsoever to get through this life without scars. No way. It's a friggin' emotional boxing ring and either you go one round, four rounds or 40 rounds depending on your opponent. So then she leaves and she's like out on her, on her own and now she's like a 28-year-old adult. She's got a degree from Juilliard. She's got an agent and she's starting her life as an actress. And it's hard. Rent is due, phone bill is due, subway factored in. She says that she just didn't realize how hard it would be, which I think that she went to Juilliard for the security that she thought she would get upon graduating Juilliard. And she was living with other Juilliard graduates. They were all having a hard time. She said, I had a couple of big aha moments. The first was that we were living the reality of being artists. The mentality pervasive in social media is you have to be the boss bitch. You have to call your agent and tell them what roles you want or hell, write it yourself. I beg young actors not to listen to that. The actors who are privileged are the ones who have the mic. That is very interesting and true. I think that there is like a really simple boiled down version of how to become an actor that we see from white successful professional actors. Well, then you have like a Mindy Kaling. Yeah. I do think in this, she did not come up in the time of YouTube and social media. I do think that there is a difference today in the way that you can like form a following yourself but that's different than being an actor if you want to act what like if you want to be a writer and creator that is different than being an actor yeah yeah yeah. and I will say crossing write your own shit off this list I do agree with the way that she's like she talks a lot about demanding certain roles being picky and how a lot of actors will say that I don't think most actors have that privilege. I, no, that I agree yeah. with. This idea, she's like, she talks about the person who turns down the Geico ad because they want something that fulfills them artistically. And she's like, to have that privilege of getting to turn down a Geico ad. Yeah, she says, the struggle is defined by not having choices. And the actor who takes the Geico commercial to get their insurance has just as much integrity as someone who doesn't take it waiting for their Academy Award winning role. Like most people don't have the ability to wait and hope, especially because as she finds out later on down the line, work begets work she gets her first movie gig and then it just is a domino effect she gets so much more work and so this whole thing of like wait for the right thing I think that in her lane of acting that's like very bad advice 
She talks about this word interchangeable in terms of casting. She had a really hard time getting cast. She was always brought in as like a crack addict mother. And one big word was interchangeable. That means even if you're darker, you have to have smaller, classical, read whiter features. So there was a lot of colorism. What made it worse is that it was not presented by white executives, but also black artists and producers. You begin to adopt the ideology of the oppressor. It becomes the key to success. So she talks a lot about the struggling early years and how many like just there aren't any good roles for her. And I think what is so striking here is when it's all a talent competition, she far and away is constantly the most talented one. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? From the time she was in high school, when it is a talent based audition, she always stands out as the winner. And now she's in the real world and she talks a lot about how it's not about talent. It's about who's putting butts in seats and the racism of the roles. And then the fact that like black movies don't get promoted as hard. So then they're like, well, these aren't as bankable. So then there aren't as many black parts and the colorism. Yeah. And then when they are making black projects, instead of hiring black actors, they're hiring someone who can sell a movie, a black comedian and these. And black musicians, she musicians. says, often get an easier time getting acting roles than the actors themselves. Mm-hmm. So her first big break, I would say, as an adult actor is in August Wilson's Seven Guitars. She says this is her first role that she wanted. She showed up for the play audition off book, ready to go. And she's like, this is she wanted it so badly and she got it. And it seems like it was a great experience for her they spent a year touring it around the country in four different cities yeah she says working out during the day performing at night was the joy of my life I was happy I felt like I was growing and changing in a way that was surprising I felt independent and safe and then they finally open on Broadway late March 1996 it's not as glamorous as you think but and it's way more isolating but man Broadway it lives up to everything you ever believed about what this business could be it fulfills the glamour and the work it fulfills the community and the camaraderie it's the stuff of dreams more than Oscars more than Emmys Each of those has its own disillusionment. Broadway is everything. It lives up to every bit of that dream. Flowers are in your room. You get presents and then you do the play. And I think it's just like that year of working together and taking chances. And like you're with all these people who truly want the craft to be good. Mm -hmm. And you're so close and you're so safe and it's, it's so intense. And she loves it. And she ends up getting nominated for Tony. And she talks about how everyone wants to meet you, how there's this really intimate thing about being on Broadway that is first of all so many people come to the show like actors and directors and famous people come to the show and then they want to come meet you backstage afterwards so you get to meet all these people and then there's also the stage door which she says is just like an incredible experience because you come face to face with the people who are watching your work every single day it's not like with tv and film where you make a project months later people have seen it they like maybe mention it maybe they don't like it's not this immediate feedback. She has her parents come up and watch opening night, of course. And my agent, Mark, said to me, Viola, you have great parents. His statement shocked me. I do. Yes, they are great. I asked him why you said that. I've been in this business a while and I've seen a lot of stage parents. It becomes more about them and not about their kids. Your parents are not that way at all. They just want to see you fly. They're just happy for you. It was a seed planted that made me look at my parents in a completely different light. It woke me up. So also around this time, Her siblings are now having babies. And unfortunately, it seems like her brother, John, and her sister, Anita, were really struggling with addiction. So her parents were taking in their grandchildren and raising them. And it begins this real shift in her father where he starts to actually show up and be a good man Mm -hmm. in the later half of his life, which I think helps her with forgiveness. And like they begin to be able to kind of come back together as a family. Yeah, her and her parents start to develop a really beautiful and like joyful relationship. She talks about how every time they would see each other, there was so much laughter and experience and fun. 
And they just wanted to show up for her and they were so proud of her. But she does mention that this joy was like a seesaw. My sister Danielle had her first child at 17. And there was just a lot of money being asked of her. So at this point in her life, she's living well. On Broadway, she's making $2,500 a week. But she's constantly being asked to give some. And she's like, it really is the more money there is to help, the worse it gets because nobody is held accountable anymore. And yeah. she, at this point, I mean, she had more money than she had ever had before, but it wasn't enough to support a family of like 15. Right. It was enough for her to have been living comfortably. And that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah. At this point, she also talks romantically. I was 28 when I went back to New York City when the play was done. I had an epiphany. I was living in our brownstone in Brooklyn. And she said, I wonder why I keep meeting assholes. Her classmate, Michelle O'Neill, looked right at her and said, did you ever think it could be you? This is when she starts talking to her friend who's trying to get her into therapy. And she doesn't go for another three years, which is understandable because of insurance and how expensive it is. But it did kind of shift her thinking to being like, I need to heal myself before she can let anyone else in. She also gets one of her first big roles with Steven Soderbergh. Part of it is that she's unapologetically being herself in these auditions. And so she has this big hair. And when she finally gets this role for Steven Soderbergh, she says, like, why did you book me? And he goes, it was a combination of your stillness and that big hair. Bam. That damn hair did something. So then it becomes this domino effect. After she books this movie, she books another part called The Pentagon Wars. And she's flying all around her. At this point in her life, she's getting steady work. It's not huge, but it's steady. And she's a working actress. And she's really trying to like take control of her life. She's in L.A. And she says, I worked out every day, ate great food, and found a great therapist who lived right up the street. She would say, Viola, what if you didn't change all of the parts of yourself that you're not happy with? What if you just stayed you? Could you be happy with that? Could you still love yourself? That's a saying that it takes some time for herself to really reconcile. She also needed to get insurance because she had horrible, horrible fibroids that were genetic in her family. My fibroids were so bad, I looked six months pregnant. Finally, when she got insurance, she was able to get them removed. And she had nine benign tumors that were removed. And when they removed them, she was left unable to have children. And she also said she was so anemic that she would fall asleep standing up. Like, it was really bad. She talks about the difference between stage acting versus film and TV. She says, there's no time to establish trust. Film and TV is about preparing and leaping. When the movie is finished, you watch yourself. I love it, but the trap has always been the self-consciousness that comes from watching oneself. No one watches themselves in life, which is what we as actors are mirroring. We just live. So around this time, she's in her 30s and she really wants a partner. And somebody says, you just have to pray for it. Like pray to God for exactly what you want. A few months later, she is on the set of a show and this man comes up to her. She had gotten her first series regular role mm -hmm. on Out of Sight, right? Yes. It's a show called Out of Sight. And she says, I just wanted to find a home, not find a home, but find home, a safe place sanctuary that was peaceful, nurturing, reliable and filled with love. I had gone from running from bullies, poverty, acting student, pounding the pavement, getting theater film work for it to L.A. I was ready to arrive at some destination. So her list of what she wants in a man is she wanted a big black man who was an ex-athlete, preferably a football player, because I love football players. I really want him to be black, but he doesn't have to be black. And I love Southern men. I love country men. So I want someone real country. And I don't want any pressure to have children. So I want him to have had a wife before me and children already. So that's settled. I want someone who trusts you and loves you, God, because then he'll be accountable to someone, you. None of the men I've ever dated were accountable to anybody. They just did and said what they wanted. And they were completely emotionally unavailable. And that's what I said, too. I wanted to be emotionally available and understand what I want to do as an actor. 
So then she's on the set of Out of Sight and there's this man named Julius who's playing the doctor that day and he comes up to her afterwards and says, I heard you said you don't know anyone in LA. I don't want you to be lonely here. Here's my card. And she is so nervous to look at this card because she says most of the time when a guy hands you his card, there's a photo of him shirtless on it and she's like, for the love of God, please not that. He was wearing a shirt on his card, which was the first green flag. Um, But then she doesn't call him for six weeks until her therapist is like, why don't you call that guy? And she finally realizes she's like, well, I didn't. I was worried about this. I was worried about that. But finally, she's like, I was worried that my life was a mess. I didn't feel like an adult. She didn't really know how to drive. She lived in this apartment she hated. And they were like, it doesn't matter. Call this guy. So she goes on a date with him and he takes her on a really nice date to the Santa Monica Pier. And he's like all excited to show her where he works. He works at this fancy furniture store. Claire loves a guy who loves fancy furniture. (laughs) They go on another date where the day of the date happens to be her friend Felicia Rashad is in town and they really want to get together and she doesn't know what to do. So she calls him up and she's like, well, would you mind if on the way to this event, we go see my friend Felicia Rashad and he goes, Felicia Rashad. Yeah, I want to go. You know, I'm going to wear my white jacket. I'm going to wear, I'm wearing my white jacket with black pants. It's a real nice white jacket. The date was perfection. He went to the photo op and stopped by to visit Felicia. After the visit, he said, I'm driving you home to your front door. At my front door, he shook my hand and said, you are a beautiful woman. I had such a nice time with you. You are so sweet. Then he calls her and he's like, I just wanted to say again that I had such a nice time. You're a sweet woman. And she said, you home already? And he said, no, I'm at the Ralph's down the street. I had a very nice time. 20 minutes later, he calls her again and is like, just wanted to let you know I am home. I had a really great time. And she's like, back at you. And then that night there's an earthquake. So he calls her again to be like, I just want to make sure you're good. And she goes, okay, one thing I will not have to worry about with this man is this man calling me. I do not have to wonder where this man is. And then she says this about their relationship that I think is like the gold standard for what a relationship should be. It's beautiful. She says, it's true. My life just got better once I met Julius. He just helped in every single way. If I asked, how do I lease a car? How do I navigate this? Where is this place and that place? He had an answer. It could be anything. He was a helpmate. It was love in the best sense of the world. We were with each other every single day. He invited me to church again. And when I went, it did not blow up. Every day was a party. When Julius and I celebrated our first Thanksgiving together, we cooked, ate so much food, a whole pot of dressing and drank. I don't know how many bottles of wine we got in the jacuzzi at the apartment every night, except when we were working or when it rained. I mean, they just like love each other. She just keeps saying everything got better. My life opened up. I was being catapulted into adulthood. Coming from a childhood of trauma, I needed a radical transformation. I hadn't been taught how to navigate the world. I hadn't been taught what could help me grow or live better. I'd been taught how to run from the world. I'd been taught how to hide and fight. I hadn't been taught how to love and be still. And so he comes into her life and she goes, my life got better because I created a family with him, with someone who loved me. Yeah, he was such a fierce protector of her. She said he was like very worried about break-ins. So they had a system for if she was being followed or something dangerous happened and involved her like coming into the driveway and laying on the horn. And one night she accidentally honked the horn and she said he like came flying out of the house like a grizzly bear, (laughs) like fully growling. And like he just helps her whenever she doesn't know if she should take this job or if it's beneath her. He goes, this is what I think. Your ass ain't got a job. You need to go on and do that job. That's what you need to do. I laughed my ass off and went to do the job. Like they just really support each other. They ended up building a business together. My biggest discovery was that you can literally recreate your life. You can redefine it. You don't have to live in the past. I found that not only did I have fight in me, I had love. By the time we clicked, I had enough therapy and enough friendship and enough beautiful moments in my life to know what love is and what I wanted my life to feel and look like. When I got on my knees and I prayed to God for Julius, I wasn't just praying for a man. I was praying for a life that I was not taught to live, but for something that I had to learn. That's what Julius represented. So they move in together. They get a house together. They end up getting married 
in Rhode Island. They have a big party for all her friends and family. She says she really did it for her parents because her two older sisters had gotten married and they'd done Vegas and a courthouse. And she's like, no, I know that I know we need to do a wedding. She was the first person in her family to have a wedding. She says, yeah. she says during this time, what healed completely from my childhood was my relationship with my father. I came to understand him with compassion as a person, as I beheld daddy's turnaround, becoming patriarch to his grandchildren. He'd begun to change almost imperceptibly when I was in college. He becomes very devoted to his wife. Yeah. And a devoted father to the children and the, he, the person who's keeping it all together for everyone. Yeah. He begins showing the mom so much love. He's there to help her, to rub her feet, to just do every everything he's needed for, which is just like such a 180 from their childhood. She says, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a different past. They tell you successful therapy is when you have the big discovery that your parents did the best they could with what they were given. Even without knowing this at the time, I didn't just see the man who was violent, abusive. I saw the man my niece Tiana saw, my sister Danielle's daughter. So then at this point in her career, her and Julius decide to start a production company and she's very consistently getting work it's not starring work but she's working a lot she says I was the actor who got five days of work here or a guest star role there or the lead in a play I wasn't the household name but enough of one to be considered for the roles where I could make a living yeah she was doing great in theater but she says even still the roles she's getting in Hollywood are like all these frustrating undynamic uncomplex addicts and she for example Get Rich or Die Trying with 50 Cent. Once again, it was cold. Once again, I was trying to make the most out of a material that simply wasn't developed. I had no idea how to find the material that was developed. None. She said there are always those one or two movies that Hollywood turns out every year that are great. If you didn't get those, you got what was left. There are not enough pages to describe the potency of good source material. It's about 80% of the work. Another problem with getting these roles for these underdeveloped projects are that they're not looking for an actor that's as good as her like they don't really care about the level of talent she says if you have a plethora of roles that are gang members drug addicted urban mothers it filters a lot of actors out not a lot of filmmakers are looking for trained black actors to play drug addicts those actors are told they're not black enough she says she did a lot of best friend to white woman roles a lot of best friend roles in black movies but she is working and she is kind of she does have a name and she's making money and she tells this story about going out to like como to George Clooney's house. But around this time, her dad gets quadruple bypass surgery for a heart attack. And as he's recovering, they find that he had pancreatic cancer that's spread throughout his body. So he begins to die. I mean, obviously, it's heartbreaking. She's home. She's trying to help him. He won't go to hospice. He wants to be in the house. I mean, it just seems so brutal. She goes home and it's like at this point, 14 or 15 people were living in an apartment under 500 square feet. She says she couldn't get them a better apartment just because so many people were always coming in and out that it was impossible to help them get anywhere better. And they wouldn't really go anywhere else. Like they wouldn't go to a different city. They had to stay in Center Falls. She doesn't get into detail, but she's like, I, I tried so hard to be able to monetarily help them. But every appliance I bought them, somebody would come in and steal it. Just there were so many friends of people she had never even met hanging around. At one point, her dad is on morphine for his cancer and somebody comes in and steals the morphine. Yeah. And then finally, they get him to go to hospice. I mean, she just, they have to do it. The mom is unable to care for him there. And within half an hour of getting to the hospice place, he passes away. My dad, who had only had a fifth grade education, it didn't make into history books except mine, had a turned out home going. Everyone came to his funeral. She had a really beautiful tribute to him and says how can life keep going after this why is no one celebrating honoring the life of dan davis all that kept playing out in my mind was the purpose of life is to live it 
So then she gets the script for the movie Doubt. I mean, this is probably the turning point in her career. I was 42 years old when I got the role in Doubt, which I think is incredible that it, I mean, she's so talented. She is somebody who has had like a true long arduous path of committing herself to a craft. I mean, she wasn't just trying to be like a young hot actor in Hollywood. She didn't go out there at 20 years old being like, I want to be an actor. So I'll be in LA so that my youth is captured in this town. She went to years and years of school because she wanted to be an actor. And I have to say the way she talks about acting in this book, like really gave me a deep respect for it. She talks about the character she plays in doubt. She says, because of my Juilliard training, I knew my task as an actor was to figure out what was driving this character. I was using everything in my arsenal and I couldn't figure out a mom who would allow her son who she believes is gay to be with priests who could be molesting him. I didn't get it. I saw it as an incredibly dynamic scene, but in reality, I didn't get it. The read-throughs have been wonderful. Meryl was the greatest read-through I'd ever seen. But when we finally did a read-through with the producers, everybody was happy. But for me, for my pace, for my standard, I knew I didn't have Mrs. Miller figured out. And then someone finally says to her something that unlocks the character. She goes, she did it because it was all she knew. Yeah, she didn't have a choice. So she gets nominated for an Oscar for her role in Doubt. And she's also dealing with a lot of medical issues again. Her fibroids have been growing back. She's in a lot of pain. She's constantly bleeding. So she's about to go under surgery for her fibroids and she tells them, just take out my uterus. I want a full hysterectomy. She tells the doctor, if I wake up and my uterus is still there, I'll kick your ass. The doctor takes out her uterus. Apparently there was an argument in the OR where they were like, all right, there's a lot of stuff around her uterus that sucks, but we could leave the uterus there. And the doctor was like, she's going to kick my ass. So... They take it out because she still wouldn't have had her fertility. She would have had a uterus there because her fallopian tubes had collapsed. So she ends up adopting a girl named Genesis out of the foster system in Rhode Island. And she talks about that later and how much she loves her and how happy she is. She says, I grew up food insecure, washing my clothes by hand in cold water the night before I had to go to school, hanging them up. And if they were still wet the next morning, wearing those wet clothes, even if I'd pissed the bed, everything had been hard for me. I had mastered hard. Now I wanted joy. The joy came from adopting a child and joy was more than worth the sacrifice. And then she gets the help. Yeah. And she talks a lot about the help and about like the backlash that it received because it it is such like a, a white gaze film, like a white savior film, kind of. Yeah, it's a white savior film. And she definitely like acknowledges that and then, but then talks about what a weird dissonance it is to like at the same time have had such a great experience. She really seems to have loved her experience filming it and she bonded with the cast. She loved Octavia Spencer. She got along with the director really well and he seemed very open to her wanting to add complexity and dynamism to the character. And like at one point she's like, I want to add this monologue and he sat down and he wrote it for her. But at the same time she was like, I do see that there was a couple things in the film like when the maids do not accept payment for what they did that she's like that's not true if you don't have money you accept money when you're hungry you don't yeah. put your pride above feeding yourself or that they never spoke badly about the white people even out of sight but I think it was really hard for her for at the, on the one hand she's getting more recognition than she's ever gotten in her life professionally and then also to hear that black people feel very are like very against this movie yeah and she also says the way black people and the way white people viewed this movie she talks a lot about the division there but she does get nominated for best actress for this movie she's up against her pal Meryl she doesn't win this time either but here she's talking a lot about how grateful she is that she has been nominated now for two Oscars but she's still not getting leading roles she has a best actress nomination under her belt but she's still being offered roles that she just doesn't feel capture anything for her she does after two Oscar nominations one for best lead actress I was not getting the same roles as my white or even some of my black counterparts. 
My career mirrored my childhood. My blackness was as much an issue on the stage and screen as it was in my childhood. It became apparent to me that all those things that were within me still needed healing. And it also became frighteningly obvious that God was using me to be a leader in the area where I very much felt a victim. So she was like, in 2012, time named me one of 100 most influential people in the world. Glamour picked me as a film actress of the year. Still, nobody was offering me lead roles except Shondaland. Yeah. So Shonda Rhimes comes to her with How to Get Away with Murder. And she is 47 years old at this point. And their people did not think that she could lead a show. And she talks a lot about how being a dark-skinned woman, like the the racism and the colorism that she has had to face and how she just like loves this character so much because it gave her a chance to be smart and sexy and vulnerable. And she's like, I don't want to be sexy as much as sexualized. Like she's like, I, I have sex. I'm a black woman who has sex. Why on TV do we only act like skinny white girls have sex? Yeah. Everyone else is still having sex. It's like the fact that there are lots of people who aren't skinny white girls means non-skinny white girls have had sex. And she's like, I look at my mom who had six kids. So clearly she was having sex and yeah. she looked like me. And so why do we have to pretend that sexuality is not part of who I am? Yeah. People would say there's no way that that show is going to work with Viola Davis in the lead. There's no way it's going to work. She's not pretty enough. She's not feminine enough. She doesn't turn me on. A friend of hers called her and was like, yeah, you know what people are saying that you're not going to be able to lead this show. I mean, that bitch is not your friend. <laughs> and she says, she's like the sexism of it all. The idea that I have to turn you on to be valuable, to be allowed to be on TV. First and foremost, I have to pass the test of, are you horny for me? And so that beautiful moment, she says, of finding out that she got the lead in How to Get Away with Murder was mixed with the fucked up moment of feeling that she didn't deserve it. Why? I asked myself, why can't I be sexualized? Why can't I be vulnerable? Why can't I have a husband and a boyfriend? Why can't I be a leading lady? As I continued to ask myself the question why, I reached a dead end that asked me, why not? She says, if I were to mark the first time I fully used my voice, it was in How to Get Away with Murder. She got that role at 48. It is insane to think that somebody as talented and hardworking and like accredited as her didn't get a good role until she was almost 50. But in How to Get Away with Murder, she gets to work opposite Cicely Tyson, which I think must have been a real full circle moment for her because that's the woman who gave her the dream in the first place. So working with Shonda, she's able to really create this like full character like a black woman that she recognizes. She didn't play strong and unshakable. She played a strong professional woman who was vulnerable and she gives herself permission to be a woman that she wants to see on television. She insists on a scene where she takes her wig off in the first season, which is not something you see on television, especially prime time. I'm aware of what my presence out there means to black women and how important it is for me to speak my truth, because here's the thing you can't take away or replace. You can't replace my authentic story with a racist one. So who I am at the end of the day is an absolute stark contrast with what society dictated I am. She says, I felt like I had two choices, either apologize for who I was and try to alter how I looked to meet their standards and try to fit in to what the masses were saying, or I could stay true to myself and make Annalise me what I looked like, what I sound like. I was at the point of my life where I chose me. And then she concludes the book with her experience doing Fences. She had been in the original stage play of Fences on Broadway, which is another August Wilson play. On film, Denzel is the actor's director. He knows how to use one word or make you add it in one gesture that can unlock the performance. And so she talks about how the final scene on stage, she was never really able to get there. And like, obviously it was critically acclaimed and people loved it, but she felt in herself that she She's never... very critical of herself. She never got there, but she said, in the play Fences, I never hit that final scene. On stage, I always felt that it never worked. It's an occupational hazard. Sometimes you just have emotional blocks that affect your ability to be able to fully play out a scene truthfully. In the scene, Corey comes home after being estranged from his father for 10 years or more. Their relationship was always broken. Corey had always been haunted by feelings of never being loved or liked by his father. 
So the final scene is him coming back to his father's burial. And the scene starts with him saying, Mom, I'm not going to Daddy's funeral. I just never knew how to make a choice in the scene and how to respond to Corey's statement and his pain. When I did it on stage, I was not yet a mother. And when we filmed Fences, I was. In the film, it was my chance to hit that final scene. The complexity of healing and forgiveness suddenly materialized for me. And I realized that your depth of understanding of yourself is equal to the depth of understanding of a character. We are, after all, observers of life. We are, after all, a conduit, a channeler of people. What you haven't resolved in your life can absolutely become an obstacle for the work you do. Denzel's advice to me was to unlock the scene, was to start the scene by slapping Corey. I froze. And so she ends up slapping him a bunch per Denzel's request. And she's like very proud of the work she did. And she gets the Oscar. The book ends by her realizing that all this work had led her back to herself. The question still echoes, how did I claw my way out? There is no out. Every painful memory, every mentor, every friend and foe served as a chisel, a leap pad that has shaped me. The imperfect but blessed sculpture that is Viola still growing and being chiseled. My elixir, I am no longer ashamed of me. I own everything that has ever happened to me. The parts that were a source of shame are actually my warrior fuel. I see people the way they walk, talk, laugh, and grieve, and their silence in a way that is hyper-focused because of my past. Someone asked her, like, how did you escape your beginnings and she finally has this realization that she doesn't need to run she's not trying to escape and she hasn't escaped what she has is she's harnessed it and realized that everything that's happened to her has shaped her and created the person she is today which is a person that she loves and I love (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean we said at the beginning and I'll say it again this was a really like a truly beautifully written book by a woman who deserves to be read about Yeah, I really want you guys to read it because I feel like there is so much trauma, but it's written with such hopeful energy that it like it is something that you like learn from and love and like want to read again. Yeah, it's a real testament to a human spirit. Mm -hmm. I love it. I'm going to watch Doubt this weekend, I think. I was thinking I'm going to watch Fences. All right, you watch Fences, I'll watch Doubt and then we'll like reconvene and mind melds that we've both watched both. (laughs) Um, you guys on the Patreon this week, we have two hilarious women, Katie Hannigan and Sarah Tolmash, which I'm really excited about. We'll also be getting into whatever gossip comes up next week. <laughs> this is your last day to watch the moment house. And this is not your last time to get LA tickets, but, but close to it. So hop on it. Love Baby, you. Love you. And who do I love the most? Oh, our five star reviewers. <laughs> Thank you to L Barry cry. Zero, zero, zero. Bear don't cry. Katie K. Kissy face. I kissy face right back at ya. Thank you. K. Mac attack 69. Oh, mac and cheese in 69. How saucy. <laughs> Denise in Greenpoint. Oh, my God. I love Greenpoint. I'm going to go do a, a walk around in your honor. Thank you, Andrea G. You are a real G. Thank you, Lady Die 2020. My God, I wish Lady Die had made it to 2020. Thank you, Rachie Olivia. I love ya more. Free my boy Milo. Hell yeah, tell me where to sign. Thank you, KDGiovanni725. Signed, K Diggs725. I dig you right back. Thank you, Lizbeth Burt. I'll be the Ernie to your Burt. Thank you, Jackie, to your Kelso. Well, I'll be the, I don't want to be Donna. I'll be the Eric to your Donna. (laughs) Thank you, Secret Keeper Gab. Okay, I will tell you a secret, even if you gab. And that's all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you.